Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Hello, greetings from the Hardin Hall Podcast Studio. Welcome to another edition of Fridays with a Scientist. Today we have Dr. Travis Prohaska from University of Nebraska Extension. Travis, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I guess you, you go generally go by TJ, right? Yeah, oftentimes I go by TJ. Yeah. Is that uh, mostly? Do you start? Do you go by TJ with family mostly, or just everybody? Well, actually, I started doing it in school because we had three Travises, and honestly, we had Travis number one, number two, and number three, and I was Travis number two. But halfway in the semester after Christmas, those numbers got shuffled, and it just made it easier because I was no longer Travis number two. Oh, okay. So this wasn't like you were a Travis Jr. growing up. Yep. Interesting. Um, so you're a Nebraska native. I just kind of like to get some background on you. What's your story? Yep. I was born and raised outside of Lincoln and Seward. Uh, my dad was a uh, dad and grandpa were actually corn soybean farmers all of their lives. Uh, so uh, when my choice came up, do I want to keep on the farm or go somewhere else? I knew I wanted to stay extent for agriculture. I've always had a passion for agriculture, but I don't know. Going in the tractor all day just wasn't my thing, I guess. You'd rather work with the farmers and actually be one yourself, in other words. Exactly. They have such an important role, but uh, like I said, just that tractor thing. I don't know. I wanted to be able to more hands-on, I guess. <laughs> Was it just being stuck in the tractor for days on end around harvest or planting time? Uh, I think probably uh, grain car at harvest. Uh, when we were doing tillage, my dad was a big tillage farmer. So every time we were out disking, it seemed like there was weeks on end when those events happened. Okay. Is he still till or has he moved to no-till? Uh, well, on the irrigated, he's still a tillage farmer. On some of the dry lands here in the last couple of years, he's starting to play with no-till. Uh, I can always tell his excitement. At the start of the year, he just doesn't think it works as good. But like even this year, uh, the drought was just so intense. I think he was pretty happy with how the no-till worked on some of the dry land overall this last year. Oh, that's good. Well, it's a benefit of having no-till. Mm -hmm. So you said corn and soybean was, so how much is your land was irrigated versus rain-fed? Because that's really kind of like the transition zone between mostly rain-fed in the very eastern part of the state and the pretty heavily irrigated once you get west of Seward. Yeah, you know, growing up, we were about 50-50, but I'd say about now, it's probably about 40, 60, 40% irrigated, 60% dry land now. Um, but we're, we've we been playing with the, we're, we're mostly river fed for irrigation. So we've been dealing with a little bit of the Blue River, just going a little bit dry and stuff the last few years. So that's added to the drought stress already, uh, lack of rain, but losing that river off and on can be pretty impactful too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think there were there were some restrictions on that river. That might have been a little bit further to the south. Because I think one of the blue rivers, I forget was it the little big blue or one of the, one of those rivers had some uh, restrictions on it for a period of time. Yeah, and, and actually even the blue river by Seward did. Uh, I think that's probably in the month of June. Actually, I think almost all the permits got a notice saying due to the intensity of the drought, they had limited, if not shut off most of them. Right. Uh, but we were lucky enough in the Seward area, we got some of those hit and miss rainstorms right about the 4th of July. It reopened it a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure we got as uh, handicapped the second half of July, but we started to miss some of those showers again as we got to the month of August. Yeah, no, that part of the state has been kind of the ground zero for the drought this year. Um, it wasn't great last year either, but I mean, at least last year there was a lot better moisture 
kind of going in July. I mean, this year, I think particularly in that area, some of the stories I heard was, um, you know, we need rain just to make sure stuff even survives. Absolutely. And I think even looking even to next year, what type of ground moisture might be there to help with that benefit? And I think you hit it. We didn't really have that going into 2023. That was pretty depleted. So uh, we'll have to see what this winter brings moisture wise, I guess, for what the news might look like next spring. Yeah, I mean, my news isn't all bad, but I mean, in, in some sense, it's it's not great either because like we're sitting here the first week of November and, you know, a really wet month for us, the winter is maybe two and a half inches of moisture. That's a very wet month for us. Uh, just looking at data from like Lincoln, like the wettest winter, climatological winter we've ever had here is like six inches of moisture. Which was, I think, in 20, the 15, 2016 winter. So that wasn't only new winters. Like there is maybe some glimmer of hope that we can get moisture. So I, I think it's possible we could get some improvement this year or this winter. And, you know, I definitely think if we could get a couple of good rains before soils freeze, that we would have better moisture to work with next year than we had this year. Not that I think you could be any, possibly be any worse than this year in terms of going, starting a um, growing season of moisture, but it needs to be significantly better than it was this year for, I think, for there to be meaningful drought improvement. And I think a lot of, I don't know about, I know even here in Lancaster County, there's a lot of, you know, very dry ponds. And I'm guessing it's got to be worse in Seward and York counties. This is you guys had even less rain earlier in the summer than we did here. Well, that's definitely the case. Uh, I, just thinking of the Platte, or Platte River, uh, the Blue River uh, outside of Seward, I, there was even a time period where there was just little shallow puddles left. There wasn't no floor or anything. Uh, it kind of makes me think back. I think it was the summer 2012. Uh, it's kind of very similar. We could pick up just big catfish or carp laying in the river better just trying to find water for it we kind of had that for a few weeks this year uh and then we kind of hit like i said that fourth of july storm it gave us a little bit of moisture back into the uh the riverbed but thankfully we missed the hail i, I think that was york county i feel like they've had that few years in a row they have yeah waco utica area really got hammered actually, i was driving out to grand island in july to give a talk and you know, I, I noticed like the corn looked visibly more stressed once I got a bit west of Lincoln. I think way before that, I'd gone over toward Omaha and driven through Cass and Sarpy. and was like, oh, the corn just looked beautiful over there because they had had some moisture to work with earlier in the year. And they were getting the same rains that we were in the summer. So I got west, it was corn visibly looked worse, soybean looked worse. And there was like about a four mile stretch there, uh, kind of right around Waco. I was like, man, this stuff looked really really awful then i it dawned on me wait this is hail damage this isn't drought stress this is hail damage and i, I it was and it was complete destruction i don't know if i've ever seen that bad of destruction from hail and i think it was i think there were some guys it was the second straight year they've had that happen yeah, and actually it was even the third straight for some i know i was talking to jenny reese who's the agent or like such an educator for york sort county uh for some it was their third year in a row and I, I think she made the comment to me a few weeks ago that actually even on satellite, some of the imagery was showing just how bad some of the damage was. And like you yep. said, I'm not sure I've seen it quite that bad before. And I hope I don't see it that way again for area growers. Right. Yeah. I actually found something on uh, Google. Um, was it? I think it was Google Earth Engine. It's like a like no climate climate engine. I'm sorry. Climate engine that Google runs. They have some really good reflectance data. And I found, I think it was the 
hence vegetation index, which is basically kind of like a sophisticated NDVI. If you zoomed in like that area of Eastern York County, like you could really, really see that it was just like appallingly bad. Like it was near zero. Now, granted, the rest of that area was not exactly in stellar shape either because of the drought, but like that was, it really, really stood out. I tried to show that on Market Journal, but like the graphics on Market Journal didn't show up very well, but it's just like, I was trying to point out like to other people in the state that watched that pro program, I was like, hey, look, we had some really, really bad hail damage in your county. You know, if you had the hail damage in late May, early June, my understanding is, you know, if the crop isn't too far along, it'll kind of come back or there's a good chance it'll come back. They usually, usually say, wait, adjusters will tell you to wait seven to 10 days for making any declarations. But you know, in this case, it was, you know, 4th of July or actually, I think it was like, what, like July 9th or 10th. But that by point, it was like, the corn's not coming back, but it has tassels on it. Yeah, because I yeah I remember that Fourth of July we I know I know they had minor hail out west of Seward, but I think you're right. I think it was that July 9th, tenth storm, and it was just impactful. And I know just talking to some of the growers, it kind of took them back a year ago when they had that intense line that kind of went through Seward or York Seward, and even into parts of Western Lancaster County. Just mm -hmm. everyone calls it the hundred mile hail stretch. Uh, I'm not sure if it was quite a hundred miles, but it was pretty intense a year ago even as well. So. It was almost a double hit a year apart. Yeah, I think my in-laws that live up near Soresco got some of that hail. We managed to not get that here in Lincoln. We somehow managed to miss a lot of the big hail here in Lincoln, at least the last several years. I think uh, early 20, May 2016, they had really bad hail down in South Lincoln. But I think since then, we haven't had that. But I know the drought was getting so bad in some parts of the state this year that some farmers were like, well, I'll take the hail if we can get the rain. <laughs> Careful what you wish for, I guess. All right. I guess I could see that vantage point uh, depending on what you've seen the last few years. <laughs> sure. Oh, there was a stretch of time there in May that was just like, is it ever going to rain here again? It's like it was so absurdly dry here this spring. Um, so it's like, wait, wait, I try to think, you actually started with us in what month? I started July. Okay. Sure, yep. So you were in North Dakota until when? Uh, I left North Dakota right about the 1st of April this year. Okay, so I guess we can't really blame the drought on you because the drought was already sort of in place before you got here. But sounds like you dealt with drought a lot up in North Dakota too. Yeah, I spent the last eight years up in North Dakota, uh, and quite honestly, we we've always experienced the drought conditions up there. When I accepted my position up there, I was the extension crop protection specialist, so I was supposed to deal with both plant pathology and entomology, uh, but. I never really had to deal with much plant pathology. It just got worse and worse that drought. And and honestly, at the end last year, I think they were ready to push me out of the state because the grasshopper populations were just insane uh, in parts of Western North Dakota. <laughs> well, that's not good if people are blaming grasshoppers on you. It's time to go if that's the case. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll tell you, I remember being out with the scout in the field. The writers are North Dakota is a really little town. It might be about the 200, 250 people. Uh, but man, it was kind of the epicenter the last three years. And when you drove down the roads, it almost looked like a living organism. The grasshoppers were so intense. And I always remember driving down the highway with my IPM scout. Uh, he starts swerving back and forth across the lanes. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm trying to expand my driving imprint so I can run over as many of these grasshoppers oh. as I can. <laughs> yeah, that was sounds back. You know, like, have you ever read the book, uh, The Worst Hard Time? Timothy Egan. It's about the Dust Bowl. I don't know if 30s. I read it, but I heard people talk to me about yeah. it. It's a very good book, and I believe there actually was, well, they, they had the PBS uh, special on the Dust Bowl. I mean, granted, that was more 
Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma Panhandle, Southwest Kansas. It wasn't really, certainly wasn't North Dakota. It wasn't Eastern Nebraska. But I, mean, I think all through the middle of the country in those years, you've had dust storms and grasshoppers. And, you know, I, I think you pretty much any plague you could get here. Other, other, it didn't rain much. So you were in Western North Dakota? Yes, I was uh, positioned in Minot. So kind of North Central, I was probably... 120 miles from the Montana border, and I was within 50 miles of the Canadian border uh, out in that position out there. So, yeah, what's the terrain like in that part of North Dakota? I've actually, that's one state I have yet to be in. I've never been there. So, in many ways, North Dakota terrain can, it's a little similar to Nebraska. When you start out on that, uh, it's the Red River, uh, kind of in that Grand Forks and Fargo area. Uh, uh, don't get me wrong, there's a little bit more of a sweeping shallow hills or depressions, if you will. It's not quite as flat as uh, eastern Nebraska, but eh, gosh, from the naked eye, it looks that way. It's just when you're out running on it, you realize how those depressions really are impactful. But uh, the further west you go, it starts to change a little bit. Uh, in the Minot area, uh, we weren't quite like you'd see, you know, in the Ogallala area with kind of the beginning of the sand hills, if you will. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't too far away to the to the west. Uh, the Minot area was kind of the gateway to oil country, if you will. Oh, sure. Yeah. So east of there, it looked very really similar landscape wise. But as you got west, you start getting more in the hills and uh, the North Dakota Badlands. If you've never been out there, some of those beautiful terrain I've probably ever seen in my life. Uh, as you I've approach heard that. the Rocky, Rocky Mountains, uh, it's just beautiful, but it's all intertwined with oil country and uh, those wells. The further west you go, they pick up in number very rapidly. Yeah, the oil production's probably always been North Dakota, but it really picked up after what about two thousand eight or two thousand nine. Yeah, I think that that's kind of their second wave. I think was kind of that oh eight oh nine season, and really it kind of lasted uh, really to about eleven. They had that intense uh, flood in the north central part of North Dakota, and not that it bottomed out the oil but it just kind of flattened out or plateaued there and honestly it really hasn't picked back up it's just kind of stayed in that plateau uh overall but and even the oil companies out there beginning to shift some of their industry away from north dakota to that new well they found down in the texas panhandle oh sure yeah this is probably kind of a well the oil is always seems like it's kind of boom or bust anyway Right. And I guess you probably had some rapid increases in population in parts of North Dakota with the oil boom. I think I was, was it, uh, uh, was Minot, did Minot see a huge spike in population? Uh, so I don't know what the exact number was, but it was approximately a doubling in population. So for those who are not familiar with Minot, it's actually about the same size as Grand Island is now. Uh, but Oh, wow. That was not the case 25 years ago, though, was oh, it? Absolutely not. But it was, you know, it was a decent center uh, it was an ag center, and it's also home to the Minot Air Force Base. So it had a mm-hmm. considerable population, but not quite like it has now there. Uh, and then even Williston. Williston used to be, a, you know, just a few thousand people, and that's probably got to the size of Columbus uh, okay. in the last decade or so. It has grown pretty rapidly as well. So uh, oil has been a pretty big deal in uh, western part of North Dakota. Uh, but with that being said, it still has not overpowered agriculture. It seems like agriculture is still the number one thing there. Uh, depending who you talk to, I know they'll have that little discussion with you if it really is number one. But ag still leads the way in North Dakota. Sure. Well, it's probably kind of like in Nebraska. It's probably not necessarily by revenue the biggest sector. But, I mean, in terms of spirit, it absolutely probably is like the backbone of the state. Absolutely. In the way that it is here in Nebraska. 
So, but that part of North Dakota was that, I'm assuming that was probably mostly spring wheat, barley, oats country. There wasn't much corn soy up there, right? Yeah. So actually, I have to say, I was up there at a really unusual time. So when I went up there. What year was that? I went up there in 20, I started in April of 2016. Oh, so you Uh, got there about the time the drought was starting. Absolutely. I got there when the drought was happening and small grains were by far number one. The Durham's, the wheat's. Uh, a little uh, barley was there, and not to say that it's uh, more of a specialty crop. It's pretty common there, but it was it held in comparison to spring wheat uh, up there. Uh, but when I got there, the corn soybean area really hugged the Fargo area in the sure. southeast corner of the state. And I remember uh, Crosby is the it's in uh, the far northwest corner of the state of North Dakota. And I remember going up there talking to a grower, and he kind of joked with me. He goes. This will be funny. Ten years from now, corn soybean country will engulf this area. And I really, yeah, I kind of just laughed at that. I didn't really believe it, but varieties are changing in genetics. I mean, you've got more drought tolerant uh, varieties out there. The ways a lot of the varieties are helping with insect management, disease management. They just said we're going to have it up there. Uh, we actually never really got there on the corn side of things, but I'll tell you, soybean exploded. Uh, it actually two years ago overpowered powered weeds to become the number one grown crop in North Dakota. Soybean exceeded wheat in North Dakota. Yep, for the wow. first time two years ago, and then it happened again this year. So, uh, soybean is challenging, and they were right. Genetics is just improving uh, so rapidly up there, but they have to they have some of those double zeros uh, soybean varieties. Uh, so they're pretty short overall, but you know the temperature gets so intense there in the summer that it just kind of makes up for the shorter days that you have at the early. Well, yeah, because it does get, it can get fairly warm up there. I mean, it, but you don't necessarily have the humidity, especially that part of North Dakota. Yeah. There's hardly any humidity up there. Honestly, I mean, a dew point of 65 up there would be relatively impressive. The elevation Minot was probably, was it about two twenty five hundred 2,500 feet. Yep. That'd be about right. So in that far North, that elevation, it's, it's difficult to get dew points in the sixties. Eastern North Dakota Especially now, there's more corn and soybean. Dew points will be in the 70s there occasionally. Yep. Um, but I think even in southeastern and maybe central North Dakota, corn and soybean there is probably certainly the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there was much corn or soybean up there at all prior to the 80s. At least not that was maybe a little bit for silage. Yep, that would be about uh, that would be correct. Uh, you know, silage is kind of the big deal out west where corn is because they just know. Uh, you, you know, when you get to the month of June, when you have the first day of summer, gosh, that sun is up about 4 a.m. Last light, if you will, probably 1130 at night. And I love the long days. It's probably my favorite part of North Dakota, having the longer days uh, on country. It means you have the shorter days than the winter. I would say what, uh, early December probably gets dark at what, like uh, 4 o'clock, 4.15? It's probably about 3.45 is when that sun starts to go down. And by 4.15, you've got no lights left. Sure. Uh and that that man, you you go to work in the dark, you come home in the dark, and you haven't even starting to see first or last light when you're doing that. Well, and you're, you're getting up closer to fifty north of latitude. The sun angle, even when it is out, is relatively low. Is it? Is it pretty gloomy up there in the winter, like it can be here in eastern Nebraska? Or is it fairly sunny? Uh, it kind of depends on the year. My first winter there, I remember they had, they set a new seasonal snowfall record up in the Minot area, but it was cloudy most of the time. Uh, I don't know if I really saw the sun more than five days in the month of January that year. But in the years that came after that, uh, we had our bitter cold and that sun was kind of deceiving. 
I kind of equaled out to be honest with you, those years that came after there. Sure. Yeah. I guess you get out in this, you know, general speaking, the North central part of the country, it's like, you can have mix of clouds and sun. I mean, I feel like we've had some relatively sunnier winters here recently. Some are relatively cloudy, but I, I, in general, as you get Western Nebraska, you get a lot more sun. I think this is probably kind of similar in North Dakota. Yeah. Well. I'd, I'd say definitely between if you compare Minot and Fargo, you know, there's about 300 miles or, or about, Eh, four and a half hours drive time between the two. It's definitely that way when you compare those two cities. Yeah. I think Grand Forks or whatever is just a little bit north of Grand Forks are probably the consistently the coldest spot in North Dakota. But I feel like when it comes to just like pure extreme for temperature wind chill that uh, nothing really holds a candle sometimes in Williston. Yeah. Pemina County is, that's the county north of uh, Grand Forks County and the Grand Forks area. Uh, I think, you know, it's always, Gosh, it always feels the coldest anyway. And I think it's because there's a little bit more humidity in that area. Sure. Everyone always talks about the humidity along that Red River. Uh, but temperature-wise, Williston really is probably the capital of the cold in North Dakota on a consistent basis. Uh, of course, there are the days where it's not, and there's a few cities that's cooler. But on average, I'd probably say that is probably the cooler location. They, they can get a little bit more downslope from from the Rockies. So it, it, yep. it probably is a little bit more likely to get to 40, 45 degrees there in January than it is in Grand Forks. And Grand Forks getting getting above 50 in January would certainly be unusual, at least historically. It'll probably happen a little bit more as we go forward, but historically it would be fairly unusual. It's a, it's a relatively arid place in general. I mean, I, but you do get most of your precipitation during the growing season up there. Yeah, the, you, the Minot area gets on average about 15 inches a precip a year. So that's probably about Scott's Bluff. Yeah. Uh, and then when you get down to that Fargo area, you're probably in the, you know, about 25 to maybe the upper 20s. Uh, but that's on a pretty wet year. Uh, but a lot of that is probably actually snow. I mean, the last couple of years, that Fargo area, I feel like how many of those snowstorms kind of straddle North Dakota, Nebraska, they ride up through South Dakota, but they still clip that Fargo area mm-hmm. in the southeastern corner of North Dakota. Oh, yeah. Last year, Panhandle and North Central Nebraska had phenomenal snowfall. South mm-hmm. Dakota had a lot of snowfall, Minnesota, at least the southern third Minnesota had a lot of snowfall. And I think parts of North Dakota did too. But yeah, I feel like snowfall up there is that you're going to have at least some amount every year. But I'm guessing my not like a really low year is probably in the mid 20s. And they're really snowy years are probably what, at least in the 60 or 70 inch range. Yeah. Gosh, the last couple of years, I was thinking of two years ago is the one that really comes to mind. I don't know if we had five inches of snow from December 1st to April 1st. Wow. And then we got the what we called the, the Easter massacre. What happened? We got, well, there some people claim they got up to 30 inches of snow uh, at the research center where I was located. That's about a mile south of town. That's the official recording site. We had 18 inches of snow that day. It really started about, you know, 2 a.m. Eastern morning. And it was over probably about 18 hours later. We just got a ton of snow. That wind, though, I think that's where there's so much confusion with the amount. I think in the center part of town, uh, because if if you've never been to Minot, Minot is actually born in the valley and it's about a mile wide. And then the city expands, climbing the hills on both sides. And that wind just funnels right through that valley. And that's where they were putting 26, 28 inches of snow. So it's quite funny seeing the TV and all the citizens kind of argue what really fell snow wise in that town that day. Well, wind blows that much. Sometimes it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, I, I almost... When you get that kind of you get snow like that with a lot of wind, it's like I the ASOT sites if they if they're reporting accurately, whatever they measure out for like liquid water equivalents, like well, 
based on temperature, one you can probably assume it's 15 to one or 10 to one or 20 to one. It's like that, that might be the best estimate, but yeah, sometimes it's like, I'll, you know, if we get six inch snow here with 30 mile hour winds and it's like, well, there's 12 inches here and two here and six here. It's like, you just kind of just do a little bit of a, a little bit of arithmetic and just take an average and kind of call it good. Yep. Um, you know, sometimes the snow will start it'll come down real nice at first, and then the winds pick up out of the northwest, and it starts really blowing everywhere. And you know, it looked like a nice, you know, four inches of even powder is not anymore. Yeah, because tradition we have that powdery, that really light snow, but we had that heavy wet snow that well, yeah, one April. year. But uh, yeah, that it was just probably a snowstorm I'll remember for the rest of my life. I guess in some ways, it maybe. Uh, Reminds me a little bit of the 97 storm minus the ice. We didn't have that icing event, but just the way it fell pretty heavily and rapidly. Well, the October. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, that was, that crossed my mind, I guess, about two weeks ago. And I started starting seeing a model output for that storm that went through the state a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, well, I mean, it's getting a little too close for comfort for timing, but it's like, it just, the storm never really had those types of characteristics. Like that 97 storm, that was a really, powerful area, low pressure. There's a lot more deep, cold air in place for it. And, you know, sometimes you can get your heaviest snowfall rates in October, November, or March, April, in this part of the country, you know, North Dakota, probably, I'm guessing it's absolutely, you could get those types of, uh, so you, you have to have a certain amount of moisture available in the storm. And those clippers that come out of the Northwest in January and February, like they, they might give you four inches of snow, but they maybe at best have, you know, two tenths of an inch of water in them. At most. I yeah. Say. Yeah. Because I always think we always, uh, in my not, we, I always think it's kind of a strange time, but we have our ag show in January. In January? In January. It's an indoor ag show. Well, I would hope so. Because <laughs> uh, quite honestly, it never fails. It always seems to be about the coldest week of the year, uh, those weeks. But uh, yeah, thinking about some of those snowstorms, usually we don't even think about the snowstorms. It's such a light snow that, we don't even think about what it's going to do until you get the wind there. And it really depends on what's already on the ground before that, you know, up there an 18 mile wind is like an average day in the park in North Dakota. It's just that windy there all the time, but here that's kind of a significant wind down here in this area. Sure. Yeah. this part of the state, that's a little bit more of a wind and Western and even parts of central Nebraska. That's, that's probably a little bit more typical, yep. but the snowfall up there though, was probably helpful for getting moisture in the soil. So you probably generally, Speaking, North Dakota would have some moisture work at the start of the year. Then you kind of have most of your precipitation. You have enough rain probably in the growing season. The other benefit up there is your overnight lows are probably, what, in the 50s still? Yeah, that's probably the most common. It's not uncommon in July to have 97, 98, 99, 100 degrees for the high, and you get to 57 for the low that night. Yeah. Uh, it's quite an, well, maybe it's a Nebraska boy saying this. That's a big swing in my opinion for a day yeah in this part of the state that would be the only times i've ever seen that kind of swing here would be like if we really are in a really bad drought mm -hmm. you get into iowa and eastern nebraska like that if you had those types of extremes unless you just had like a really significant cold front or something that's because you have your conditions are extremely dry yeah high 95 and low 55 and shattered that's not really that atypical it's like their rate diurnal range is a lot greater but that Cooling off at night, though, probably is very beneficial for crops. Like, I can actually kind of see why corn and soy would do somewhat well up there, especially the corn with that big spread. I just, I guess I, I, I this image probably in my mind that, that the day or not the, the season just is, was probably traditionally too short for most of the older varieties. 
they clearly now have some varieties that will do well and was what, what kind of what what degree or not degree days um well yeah degrees what, what kind of degree day corn are they doing up there uh, well they're usually looking for maturity rates probably you know right about 80 uh okay. and a lot of that has to they're be, here down here is like like 105 115 yeah and you know as as you probably get closer to the fall city it probably gets a little bit higher right uh which would make sense and up there uh, especially in the Minot area, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, that was more of a silage cutting one. In that Fargo area, you might be right about that 90 uh, area. And that, down there, they're able to cut that a little bit more for grain, like you see in this part of the city here. Uh, but it's just kind of overpowering. You know, I, earlier I talked about wheat, so at least when I went up there being the number one crop there. Uh, when farming up there, you know, here, there's some growers that, you know, on average, we're planting corn early April, if weather mm -hmm. conditions permit. I, I gosh, I go back to March 2012, that drought year here. I remember dad doing it even at the second half of March. That's wheat country up there. I mean, they, you know, you'd probably start seeing, you know, April 12th ish, probably average starting date for wheat. And that dominates everything. And once the small grains are done, you get into the pulse crop. So things like lentil and field pea and chickpea, those kind of get priority. And, you know, corn, soybean, um sunflower those are late planted crops up there you know memorial day is, sure. is when you start planting those type of things up there so in my opinion you're kind of already a few weeks late but that's just the difference in the growing degree days that you have from nebraska to north dakota well absolutely well it would strike me memorial day is probably about the point in time where you could assume is north central northeastern north dakota that you're safe from having a freeze for until probably after labor day Yep. But their average first freeze up there has got to be in September, isn't it? Uh, if I recall, August 18th was the average. However, August that only happened one time in the Minot area when I was up there. So I always laughed at that average, but it was my first year up there that we had it. Uh, and actually my second, uh, so it would have been the spring of 17. So it would have been the next growing season. Uh, it actually snowed there still on J uh, June 3rd. I lost a lot of my canola trials that year. It snowed on June 3rd? It, yeah, it snowed <laughs> on June, June 3rd. And if I recall, they had told me that July was the only month on record that they'd never had snowfall there. I, I could believe that. I mean, did you um, consider reconsider your life when it was snowing on your canola in, in June? <laughs> Honestly, I reconsidered that uh, before that. I remember, I think they had, we got to negative 45 and we were just shy of negative 60 wind chill. That was the day I reconsidered. Why am I up here? But that was only my first winter. We never really were that bad any other winter after that, the remainder of my years up there. Uh, but it wouldn't be, it was common to be at negative 25. And I'm actually a big runner. I, I tend to run about five miles a day. I would run outside to negative 25 degrees up there, but that dry cold is so different that you, it was tolerable. Yeah, so it's different than what you experienced growing up in eastern Nebraska then. Yeah, I was home at Christmas last last year. It was 18 degrees and a mile in. I had to call mom to come get me because the burning sensation from the moisture was so intense. Oh, sure. Well, it was like legitimately really, really cold here, like uh, three or four days before Christmas. We had a high of like two below and 45 below wind chill, which is about my threshold for like actually wanting to be outside. Like, I don't mind the cold, but that was pretty bad. But it was relatively short-lived. I mean, the, the really extreme cold here is getting a little fewer and far between, which is probably okay in some ways and maybe not okay in other ways. 
Uh, so you, by uh, trade, are more of an entomologist. Yep. So you got a PhD here in, from entomology. Yeah, I got well, I got both my master's and PhD here at Nebraska. So in my master's, I got to work with Dr. Tom Hunt, who uh, Nebraska Extension is saying goodbye to. It's kind of a weird feeling. He's retiring here uh, this year. But we, when I was with him, we were working on the soybean aphid project. Uh, soybean aphid was virtually brand new to the country back then. And uh, we had so many questions about soybean aphid back then. And it seems so weird because we have so much knowledge now here in 2023 about soybean aphid. Um, and then in my PhD, I shifted a little bit and I worked on the uh, renewable energy switchgrass project, looking at aphid impacts on switchgrass. And, you know, if that became a monoculture type crop in the area, what insects would be impactful to it? So that was kind of what my concentration was in my doctorate. Sure. There probably hasn't been a huge push for switchgrass in this area, has there? It hasn't happened yet. Uh, and part of me wonders, you know, switchgrass, UNL is actually the leader in switchgrass research, but uh, Dr. Ken Vogel and that team really focused on protein levels for livestock feed and monitor, monoculturizing it for that purpose. Uh, and, you know, switchgrass is native to Nebraska, but it's more of a bunch grass in native prairie settings. You know, will it someday become it? It could but I don't know if that's anywhere in the next 20, 25 years. I yeah. think that's still pretty far out. You probably have to have some drastic change in market demand or something else to probably force that change, um, which probably is. So, so I think, you know, right here in this immediate area, most people 35, 40 years ago were growing winter wheat and sorghum. Corn and soybean in Lancaster and Gage colonies are relatively recent. Like you had to go east into Cass Road to find rain-fed corn and soybean and west into Seward uh, to find irrigated. When did your family start adopting corn and soybean on run rain fed? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, corn and soybean has been part of my family's heritage since when I can, far back as I can remember. So they, did, they didn't really go into sorghum in the 50s? We we had some sorghum. Uh, I know grandpa and dad both really disliked the sorghum. They always had that allergy to it, so they tried to limit it oh. as much as they <laughs> Well, that's could. understandable. Yeah. I, gosh, I want to say 94 might have been about the last year my family had the sorghum, and then we went fully corn soybean rotation after that. Um, and, you know, a lot of that had a little bit to do with the market, too. It just seemed like as you got into the 90s, the market that really accepted it started to go down as well. It wasn't as welcomed in every market as it is in some areas of the state. I think if you go out to the panhandle, you probably still have a market for some sorghum in that part of the state. Yeah, well, it strikes me that it's all about disappeared around this part of the state. You, I, I haven't seen a field of sorghum at least um, anywhere around I-80 in many, many, many years. Yeah, I found one in Polk County, but I think that was just a specialty thing they were doing for the livestock when I was talking for them. It really wasn't meant for market. Uh, but man, that's probably the first field I've seen, gosh, since the mid-90s even. Sure. So you started extension in said July, yep. and you so you covered um, I'm sorry an accountability region. Mm -hmm. What's your coverage area? So my coverage area actually just changed in the last month. Uh, oh, it did. Yeah, I started with three counties, and now those three counties. Well, one of them stayed the same, and the other two changed. But currently, I serve uh, my home base is Colfax County, so I'm stationed in Schuyler. Uh, but now I serve Butler and Polk County, so the David City to Osceola region. Uh, for Nebraska Extension. Sure. So what's been your favorite part about being an Extension so far? I think so far it's probably been all the people and all the different 
expert areas that we really have in the state. Uh, it's been really cool to just to see how everyone's kind of a team player. They want to they want to learn from each other and they want to teach others as well. And I think that's just an amazing uh, observation to have made really in my first, you know, 10, 12 weeks of being on the job here. Uh, just seeing the connection everyone builds with one another. Yeah, I've noticed that too. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. I've been in this role for seven months and yeah, it's been been a blast so far. Uh, I don't have anything else compared to so You were a North, North Dakota Extension Assistant for a while. I mean, was is it comparable or they still have a presence in a lot of counties or is it very much just like kind of a regional thing like it is in some, like Iowa and some other states? So North Dakota is still a county-based system, but it's a little different than the Nebraska-based county system. So uh, as you said, we have accountability regions here. So I serve three counties. My NDSU Extension, North Dakota State University, Every county, they have 53 counties. Every county still has an ag-based educator. Uh, so um, they have a little bit more of that spread. Uh, where it's a little bit more similar is probably coming down to family consumer wellness uh, agents as well as the 4-H agents. Those are more regional, almost similar to what you see at Nebraska where you have an accountability region. But on that ag-based, uh, every county still has one. Uh, then we also have the research extension centers, and that's where I was based at one of them. I think we have six of them up in North Dakota. Uh, I was at the Minot one, but traditionally there's three, four, five specialists there in different roles on the ag side. Uh, research is taking place uh, on those sites. Uh, I believe we had about 1,200 acres of research in the Minot one alone. Uh, that one's began to lower because Minot is just growing so rapidly. It's almost yeah, they're encroaching on their land. It's almost swallowing the research center in the Minot area. Um, but yeah, then we have probably about, you know, 20, 30 more specialists on the Fargo-based area as well. Uh, Fargo is actually going through that same experience that Minot is. A lot of, you know, if you've ever been to that campus at Fargo, it used to be kind of the northern boundary. In fact, the airport built north of it, and that was really not in town. And uh, both NDSU, Ag Campuses, research sites, and that airport really aren't the edge of town anymore. They've been swallowed. And they've been talking about moving some of those research sites for a while now and might not might be in the same boat here in a few years. Sure. Well, the issue there you run into is you can't necessarily find the exact same type of ground that you have in your current research plots. Like sometimes those places were where they were because the ground was very suitable for what they were trying to grow. So the, the kind of the, really, the accountability region that you cover, I'm assuming it's mostly corn, soybean, maybe just a little bit of winter wheat or? Uh, so in my academy region, it's I'd say 95% corn soybean. Uh, there is quite a bit of livestock actually on the northern part of the Colfax County. Uh, and then it's kind of sporadic uh, through Polk uh, Butler. Uh, not to make it sound like there's not that much. There actually is quite a bit there, but kind of in comparison, uh, especially as you get to those rolling hills of northern Colfax County, if you will. Sure. Yeah, I'd say there's a little more terrain in northern Colfax County compared to a little bit further south. It's fairly flat. Butler County, some of it's relatively flat, some of it's relatively hilly. Yeah, I think it's kind of when you approach that Platte River Valley, you start getting into that more hill area, especially that Bruno Abbey region. Uh, as you get north of David City, you got that, of course, you slope down into the valley, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you kind of started a relatively challenging time for that accountability region in terms of the drought. Matter of fact, I most of Bolt, Butler and Polk County are still in exceptional drought, which is the worst category there is. And if there was a D5, I would probably recommend that uh, some parts of that area and further south would 
they would have been quite, they would have qualified for it this year if that was an option. Right. Uh, but like, what are you even hearing from uh, some of the farmers and the producers up in that area in terms of like just their, their impacts and um, how they were trying to manage this year? Cause this wasn't exactly the first year of this. It was probably at least the second year in a row. They've had drought conditions, probably at least in a lot of cases, third out of fourth year, there was some real challenging issues regarding drought, but I was kind of curious what, uh, what your experience has been so far in the interactions? Well, I think, well, I think there's just quite a bit of concern to be honest, you know, that area has kind of been a big nitrate area. That's really been the discussion though for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, I know they've been talking about raising it a whole nother level for the amount of nitrates in that area, but I think this year caught a lot of them off guard. Uh, that's kind of one of the areas uh, in the, along that Platte River Valley, they've been playing with the cover crops a little bit. And I know a lot of growers that I talked to have thought about, do I really want to work with that this year? Because that was one thing they picked up on last year was some of those cover crops were pulling some of the moisture away from the commodity crops. And they really didn't want to have that looking into next year. So I know some of them were pulling back from that impact. I know some of them went forward with that again, but there's quite a bit of concern of what that uh, base soil is going to look like next spring when they get to planting for the commodity crops. Sure. Yeah. I know I've talked to uh, uh... Carl Cordova was on this podcast a little over about a month, maybe about a month and a half ago. And, you know, she's talking about cover crops are a great way to manage soil health. And, you know, she was kind of mentioning that one of the challenges of cover crops in this area, particularly once you get north and west of Lincoln, is you don't always have the moisture in place in the fall. And it's like it, they will take out some of the moisture that does come in the winter. You know, ideally, I think, you know, further east, you could certainly once you get to, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, I mean, they probably are going to be very good about probably you kind of want them to take up some of the moisture because it's almost, you know, probably help them be just slightly drier, start their next growing season. Um, but I would imagine in some cases, though, they can help prevent some water loss. I mean, if they get established and then like I was just thinking like a winter like 2022, for example, when we had almost no moisture here whatsoever. But this late this last winter, we had a little bit of rain and a couple of snows. Winter 22, had, like nothing around here. But we did have good moisture like at least in this region, at least in this immediate area, like late October, early November. So there's deeper moisture. I'm guessing a cover crop might have actually helped preserve some of the deeper moisture. Um, you know, but this last year, I could understand that, especially there just wasn't much to work with going into the winter, didn't get that much over the winter. And I could understand, like, what little there was might have been taken up. So I can understand that some people might have been uh, sort of scarred by that. I mean, were, were there any particular cover crops they found were more judicious with the water than others it well for me when i talked to them it seems like a few farmers did strictly rye and some of them added like the turnips and stuff to it uh but it seemed like this the rye ones were the ones that they were calling out a little bit more but you know cover crops if, if you know thinking of the drought how the impact they have but if we can't get past the drought they have such a huge benefit to crops in our area oh absolutely you brought up one of them already i mean that can help kind of hold moisture uh, especially in the winter, kind of hold that snow kind of in that little bit of an area and as it melts, it'll help replenish that a little bit. More impactful compared to areas that don't have that. But I mean, even from an entomology perspective, from a soil health perspective, from the nitrate perspective. So, I mean, it has a huge future in front of it. But I think I think right now, drought's just on such everyone's mind and for good reason. And I think that's always going to drive the conversation for the next year or so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, in an ideal sense, like maybe we see a good improvement this winter we're not going to be totally out of it and it's like you know like i was mentioning earlier if we don't get 
good moisture the next month. We're going to be faced with a similar situation next spring as we were this spring. Um, hopefully, I mean, what, what I don't want is for us to need six or 10 inches of moisture between April 1st and 1st of June, just because then you start running into planting issues and farmers tend to get kind of pissy when they're stuck on the sideline for a week or two. Because at least in this part of the state, generally speaking, you don't want to be planting in June if you can help it. Yeah, I, I mean, it makes me think of my dad. My dad likes to be one of the first people in the field and wants it in the ground as early as possible. And if one storm comes through and delays them, that urgency just grows. And you know, sure. that, that might just be a factor of the area. Uh, I mean, it's just a widespread there, there area. There probably is a real, I mean, I, I think I've read studies where there really generally is a benefit to getting it in earlier. Yeah. Uh, and that probably helps with maturity, especially at the end of the year. You you know, one, if depending on the moisture, you can get into the ground and stuff like that, getting your full uh, degree days in and stuff like that, because you just never know what the end of the season is going to look like either. Sure. Well, if you could hit tasseling here around the 4th of July, it's usually, I mean, it seems like the hottest weather here tends to be a little bit later in July, first part of August. Yep. So if you can get the tassels you know the first part of the reproductive stage occur a little bit earlier in july then you're probably statistically speaking a little bit less likely to deal with the heat yep. so this year we dealt with you know not only just that drought we probably actually on statistically were cooler than average in july and august wasn't terrible if you take a look at the month as a whole but we had some very very intense periods of you know really high temperatures really high humidity very little wind did you was that kind of the last straw in your area for some of the rain-fed crops, or is that already? I'm not talking like late August heat wave, or is it already too late by then? I, gosh, it kind of depends where you were. So, because I know uh, I had I actually had Jenny Reese come out to observe things with me on some of my dad's farms. So, we had a dry land farm uh, about a mile and a half west of Seward. We had another one about two miles east of Staplehurst. So, you know, they're about five miles apart. Uh, if you know where staplers is, mm -hmm. uh, they were planted about a day apart from each other. But the staplers area caught not terrible, heavy amounts of rain. You know, you know, five one hundreds here, a tenth there. You know, they got just these little brief things that helped it progress enough. But like that sword area, I remember taking her out there, and it was probably what about July eighteenth, I think, when we were out there. Uh, the one by sword was just toast already. Um, the ears are actually there. They're, you know, three inches long. The, yeah, no kernels. The kernels were minimum and they were actually dented already. Oh, wow. Uh, because so it just, just completely fried. accelerated the cycle. Yeah, it was just fried. But then when you went to the one by Staplehurst, uh, it actually took some of that beneficial storms and it actually prolonged itself a little bit. I bet you we probably got 15, 20 bushels an acre more at that site. Which doesn't sound like a lot is because I know that sewer site was probably about 30 bushels an acre to start with. It was just that gone. Yeah, that's probably the worst yields you guys have had in years, right? Oh, yeah. It's probably the worst that I remember in my lifetime. So, so even growing up, you didn't see anything that that e low. Yeah, I don't even even going back to 2012, which to me was probably the worst dry experience. Uh, yeah, this one was probably still took it, but that staplers one front farm still did a little bit better. So depending where you were and how you hit those storms, uh, even like I said, if it was just minimal, it actually helped a little bit if you got that lucky. Right. And we did statistically get quite a bit of rain late June, early July and early August this year. And then some places caught some rain in the latter part of August. But, yep. you know, not all, not all that went on the ground. Actually, probably in some cases, not even half of it went on the ground. In summer, 
you know, vegetation gets relatively greedy. It wants it's warm, it wants the moisture. So like that inch of rain is a you know, week later, you still need an inch more. Yeah, because I was thinking dad tries to write down his moisture. And I think before the fourth of July, he had said they had not had two inches in a single storm in two years. Yeah, I believe that. That fourth of July storm came and we had just over two inches. Yep. And I think we had one more storm about the 18th to 20th of July that probably gave us that amount again. And then it kind of, it pretty shut back off in that Seward area again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, up in my accountability region, I think Butler, Colfax, they had a little bit, I don't know if they really had more. They just had smaller amounts, but they were a little bit more frequent. And I think just having it spread out helped it a little bit more. But I, even that Platte River has dried out for a few, uh, few weeks. But uh, they had some of that hailstorm, and I think it was probably, gosh, has it been a month ago? Maybe they had that eighty mile per hour destructive wind that came through, and that kind of brought down more in that area. Oh, I believe that was October third. So yeah, it's been just a little bit over a month ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know that that kind of brought a, especially north of Columbus and north of Skyler. There's quite a bit of especially where the corn was not protected by trees in that area. It brought a lot of it back down. So it's just kind of an extra dagger in the fire, if you will. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing we didn't really have around here this year that would have just absolutely... Well, I, we didn't have... Well, at least in East Central, Southeast Nebraska, it wasn't incredibly wet at harvest. Like, that, that would... I, would, I joked with a couple of people back in the summer. It's like, well, the, the absolute irony of ironies if we, you know... The, what. When farmers go to harvest their crop, they can't get the crop out just because it just keeps raining. But I mean, at least in that case, if, if that had been the case, so at least you know next year there's water to work with. I mean, this year, you know, now it was like, well, harvest probably progressed along pretty well, but uh, we don't necessarily have the moisture this year. Now, you go north of Platte, especially once you get about 45 miles toward the Platte, they've had really good moisture the last month. So things are generally a lot better once you get toward Norfolk and Wayne and uh, further west, like they've actually seen significant improvements in the drought mm-hmm. in that area. Uh, but yeah, going back to 2012, what you mentioned, it's like 2012 was a very classic flash drought, you know, very rapid onset and in intensification. The difference though between 12, like 12 and 22 probably were similar in a lot of ways. I think the main difference was in 22, the onset was about three to four weeks later. So I think that gave crops a little longer stay of execution, at least I'm talking more specifically uh, kind of I-80 corridor. So, you know, an hour in either direction of that. This year, the difference between like going to 12 and 13, at least in this part of the state, we started getting moisture in the spring at 13. We didn't have moisture this spring. And so I've been a co-cross observer for over eight years I so I think I recorded like an inch seventy seven or somewhere along those lines in July seventh of twenty twenty two. I did not record an inch of moisture in a twenty four hour period one again a calendar day again until like June thirtieth of this year June twenty ninth June thirtieth somewhere in there so I mean, it was almost a whole calendar year that we went without having an inch of moisture in a, in, a, in a day and I think actually up until late June our wettest day for the year was in January. Now, that's not good if you've gotten that deep into the year and your wettest day was in January. It's like we had like less than half an inch of moisture a lot of this part of the state in the month of May. And there were years where we could have gotten away with that, but this was not a year where we could get away with that. So the fact that anything was growing at all in my in my mind is sort of a test with the modern genetics. And, you know, initially I was thinking back in June, it's like, well, I guess one benefit of this 
of the drought was we wanted to deal with any disease issues. And then it started raining. Then I started realizing, oh, no, that's not the case. Like, I'm assuming that you've probably had a lot of disease issues on soybean and corn. Yeah, we did. Uh, white mold was something that was coming into my office or being called in quite regularly, to be honest here, especially early part of August. It was really being questioned in that area. So it was something, and you know, humidity was there, the moisture was there. Mm -hmm. it, everything just kind of aligned perfectly. And honestly, I think, you know, traditionally, we consider a drought year crime for entomology related issues but i think we just had a you know we said not that we didn't have the entomology issues we absolutely did but i think we just got caught off guard with more of having the plant disease issues arise in front of us and sure. taking notice to a lot of growers and it probably just because those rays started coming at the right time and for as bad as the drought was in some parts of the state it was unusually humid like there were still dew points in columbus and up toward norfolk of almost 80 or over 80 yep. in august when we had the heat wave which like you know, logically, maybe not logically, but I, I, I associate like an area that's a D3, D4 is not having dew points that high. Like that almost shouldn't happen. Like that's not really fair. <laughs> uh, so that probably was that high humidity, I'm sure was probably, probably very good for the diseases, not good for the crops or the people. But so what, what were some of the entomology issues that you dealt with this year in your accountability region? Well, two of them, well, two of them that were crop related that really came up were probably rootworm and soybean gall midge. I'm not sure the rootworm was as widespread as I kind of thought it would be. Uh, people absolutely noticed it. Uh, we were seeing the adults feeding and clipping some of the silks on it. Um, but I'm not sure I had as many spray for as I thought they would, or they were just tank mixing it together. That corn rootworm was definitely in the area. I think soybean gall midge was one that kind of caught a lot of people off guard. I know I talked to a lot of growers that they knew in the past neighbors had had them, but they had never come across them before. But soybean gullmage was one that really spread quite regularly this year. I you know I know I so how do they spread? Well traditionally uh, the movement is they tend to actually stay really close or tight in different areas with one another. So if you have a corn soybean rotation at one site, uh, on one site you're gonna have uh, corn last year soybeans uh this year and then it's going to flip-flop so where you had soybean last year you get corn well it just kind of jumps the fence but a lot of our small midges help get spread out by wind movement mm -hmm. uh, aphids are one that is very much known by wind movement it can blow uh, aphids for thousands of miles in fact you know soybean aphid is not terribly common for being known to overwinter in this area and a lot That's of that has cool. well I think they can even get through the cold. It's just our growers here are so good at controlling the winter host, which is common buckthorn. Uh, it's just not terribly common in many fence lines anymore. Uh, even up in North Dakota, we know it could uh, overwinter, but growers there are on top of controlling the common buckthorn. So a lot of our infestations of soybean aphid came in the upper level air movement. It come in from Illinois and Indiana and Ohio, where it's very well known for overwintering in those areas. Uh, just because of that host plant being there. Um, so it's just a, a question of applause to our growers for helping keep that under control. So just not as readily able to overwinter here, but a lot of the midges have that same type of movement because uh, a lot of them are very small. They're just so prone to movement that winds blow them around and we need it. But it, situating in the crop plant though, you know, you got to have those fissures in the stem uh, or 
cracks that develop, especially once you get beyond the almost the second uh, leaf stage and the, and the plants that you start to get that. And that allows that adult to lay eggs in there. And mm. now you have that infestation that's in that area. And I think that just caught a lot of people off guard this year. They didn't realize they had it. And for some of them, they might have had it a few years and just not known it. The population may not have been big enough, but so they you would they would have noticed on the yield monitor. Can you is there any visual clues that you have that? So I think the probably the number one visual cue is, and you may not see it if you have a minor population, but if you have a more dense one, but the bottom couple of inches of that soybean plant actually starts to blacken. Uh, it might mm -hmm. even look like it's starting to rot per se. Uh, but if you pull it up and you just slice the cover of that stem open and peel it back, you can see the bright orange immatures feeding there that exposes it. So it's it's very easy to see if you cut that uh, epidermis open on that plant. But like I said, if you don't see that black, a lot of people don't think about cutting it open to look there. And you tend to need about you know, a moderate to a high population before you get that impact to be visible. Sure. So this has to be pretty bad before you actually get the visible impacts of it you might even not even see the visible impacts of it unless you were maybe going out and doing some scouting right exactly and you know in some cases that blackish to the stem might resemble different types of diseases and stuff out there so just because you have it uh you you want to be checking with it cut it open are you finding those immatures there or do we need to bring it into the uh, pest diagnostic lab to figure sure. out what's going on because it's amazing how many different insects can have similarities and some of our plant diseases have. Sure. Do you refer a lot of people to the clinic? Uh, I have. Uh, when it comes to the soybean gall midge, I guess, you know, I've been part of that project even at NDSU. So I've recognized how to uh, ID it there, but there've been plenty of diseases that, you know, we have a great diagnostic cure between Kyle Roderick and Kyle Cook. So uh, they yeah, can help they... answer a lot of different things and lead people down the correct path for ID. Oh, yeah. So Kyle and Dylan were on talking about corn issues two or three weeks ago. Then Kyle and Tamara were on two weeks ago mm -hmm. talking about soybean. And yeah, I mean, one of the, again, I, I'm, I'm a climatologist by trade, so I don't know much about bugs or diseases. Yeah, But one thing I, I took away from those conversations were that the fungal and bacterial diseases can be very hard to distinguish between between them. Yep. And even sometimes insect pressure versus disease from a naked eye could be very tough. So it's like you almost have to really, you know, probably have some pretty strong level of education on what's going on. And I think that's probably where extension really could come in handy is that educators are trained to work with these things and can give you advice on how to take care of it. So what 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 do you uh, typically do for gallons for treatment? Is there a treatment that's available at a certain point or... You have to catch it really, really early or else. Well, so that actually depends on the insect you're dealing with. Unfortunately, soybean gullmage, we're just not finding anything that really works for it. And a lot of it has to do with its uh, life cycle. So, you know, if you think about early on, if things are being impactful early in the season, one of the things that Justin McMeckin, who's our, one of our extension entomologists here, has found, actually the best thing they might have found so far is coming in and healing around the crops hilling hilling so you cut as in, in you put in a mound of dirt yeah you put out mound of dirt however you got to do that early they found you have to do that the second leaf stage the problem with that is the crop is so little you almost bury it right and it's not it's not like you can go through and do a, a whole quarter section and uncover it by hand you just can't it's not really durable a lot of the chemicals really yeah not now the size of farms nowadays yeah 
a lot of the chemicals aren't really working to the best that we thought they would. I know there's research going on with beneficials uh, that uh, Bob Cook out of Minnesota is looking at. Uh, there's a lot of ground beetles that seem to have a play, but is it doing enough? Uh, I know Justin is looking at having chemicals uh, come in where you're spraying inside the canopy because it's just when it becomes a big problem, the canopy is so thick, you can't get the chemical down there. So they're looking at a lot of different things. We just haven't been terribly successful at getting that chemical contact to be impactful. Sure. It's almost like you need a drone to go in there and give it like a perfect strike, like in the right exact spot at the right time. But yeah. that also would be like, you have to do that almost every single plant. And that would probably take a very long time would not be cost effective. Well, quite, you know, I, at Husker Harvesters, I spent a couple of days out there and I actually went out to one of the drone sites to watch them showcase it and put it off. And I said, you know, soybean gallmage is growing rapidly. And he had actually heard about it. And I was explaining to him the issues we're having. And he was trying to convince me, especially of one of the big dr drones, that the force of the propeller might help the chemical come through the canopy and be impactful. Well, we don't have research around that to see if that would really happen or not. Right. Well, you have to wonder kind of what some of the, if there are unintended consequences of that. Yeah. You know, having that force down, you know, having, where's the air forcing it down, you know, especially if you're on a field edge or something like that. So uh, has it been tried yet? No, it's just an idea being tossed around and it might be something that uh, might be worthwhile doing research on one of the research farms going forward. But uh I don't know if I would suggest that to anyone. I'd probably stay away from it until we know more about the impacts that it could have. Sure. So is it a kind of a fun transition going back into more traditional corn soybean? Because when you're in North Dakota, you're mostly working with yeah. wheat and other specialty, they're not specialty crops, but different types it, of crops. Well, I'll be honest. I remember when I graduated in Nebraska and went up there, I was terrified. They have, they have 40 different crops they grow across North Dakota. So sure. you went from going, oh, you had two of them that you really thought about. Well, when you expand to 40, and to be honest, in the Minot area, we really had probably about 15 of them that were commonly grown. You know, when you get out to Grand Forks, you get into the sugar beets and the potatoes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. well, um, we have that stuff in Nebraska. I mean, sugar beets tend to be kind of common in panhandles, okay. dry beans. And in the Scotts Bluff area, you kind of have that. But that's something that's kind of new to me. I was so wrapped around soybean and corn. And then you go up there and you get so dedicated to some of those specialty crops, for lack of a better term. Now you come back and you're like, oh, what did you have up there? You had many crops, but you had two or three pests that were impactful. Well, now you're coming back to two dominant crops, but you have numerous pests that are sure. impactful. So I guess that same relearning motivation has come back that I had when I went to North Dakota, trying to relearn everything again here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of, and don't get me wrong, a lot of the pests are similar, but seasons are more spread out here just because of the length of time soybean if would probably arise a little bit earlier here probably more impactful a little bit longer than you'd see up north um but i think one big thing that we had up north that you're beginning to see in rootworm where we have resistance from chemicals and stuff like that here but we had it in a lot more other uh, insect species up north like soybean aphid uh, it was first found to be resistant to warrior uh, some of the lambdicides and bifenthrin you know, those are pretty common insecticides, uh, both in Nebraska and in North Dakota for controlling aphids. And we had come across uh, nine counties that first year that they were reported that those chemicals weren't working anymore. And in fact, a couple of those fields, I think there's two fields, both chemicals failed, wasn't controlling. Uh, and after that, we start to find it in some uh, beetles and sunflower. And after that, we found it in flea beetle and canola. So uh, something that we've been 
up in North Dakota that's really dominated the headlines has been chemical resistance that's taking place. Uh, down here, I'm, I'm, you know, I talked about corn rootworm. I'm already seeing it. You know, one that usually comes up on drought years is uh, two-spotted spider mite. One of those that is seeing in some parts of the country resistance. So, um, I do think we'll probably find soybean aphid resistance here in North uh, Nebraska someday. That's uh, where is it being blown in from? Is the question mark? And are you getting that point where it blew in from an area that's already seen it, or aren't you? And that's really the big question mark around that one. Sure. So do you think it's more of a matter of like where it's coming from that makes a difference with the resistance or is like, there's some other, it'd be physiological or climatological reason that they're seeing a lot more resistance in North Dakota than they are down here. I think it's probably where it's migrating from because what we did up there, we went and collected numerous populations from across the state. And we actually did these vial inside of the chemicals. We put a one X ray as to the label, and then we did a two X and we put numerous populations there, and we even went back to those field sites. But we didn't throw those populations away. We actually put them into the uh, growth chambers, and we let a season or two go by and retested them again. Even the ones that had resistance lost it as they continued to reproduce because they really you're losing some of that impact and you're losing that exposure, if you will. So mm -hmm. it really doesn't have that point to keep altering. I think really what we're seeing is, you know in parts of Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, when you're spraying for soybean aphid two or three times because the populations are so intense, you're continuing having that chemical exposure. Sure. So when it blows into these areas like North Dakota, where you don't have that type of exposure, you're catching it on a season or two, but then you see it fade away. Sure. Well, it almost makes more sense. You might get more aphids from, say, eastern Iowa, Illinois, southern Wisconsin, North Dakota, than you would here because for us to get that here, you'd have to have a pretty persistent easterly fetch, which we actually did have for a while this spring because of a very dominant ridge of high pressure over uh, southern Ontario. But North Dakota, like you can get strong southeasterly fetch, but that's a little bit more of a common wind. Where is it coming from? Southwestern Minnesota, eastern Iowa, Illinois. So actually, that does make sense what you're talking about. Yeah, and, yeah I thought of that. And, and I think, you know, we were talking about the spread of soybean or soybeans in general in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. I think you're beginning to see numbers change in North Dakota because of the movement of soybean going west. You know, when I first moved up there, uh, really the eastern third of the state and east, that, mm -hmm. that's it. You didn't really find soybean up there. You know, two years ago, you know, soybean aphid was found in the Minot area about 12 years ago. Uh, I think it was about uh, right about right yeah. over three now, so about the 2010 year they had it. So what when when was it first noticed in the U.S.? Uh, it was first detected in the year 2000, and it was right on the state line of Wisconsin, Minnesota. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then it's kind of spread from there, and honestly, we think it was probably there even before that, but it just went under the radar. We sure. And that was not a, a, well, depending on where that might've been, that might've been a mean soybean area back then, but that probably was not traditional soybean country 35, 40 years ago at all. Yeah. Because, you know, this is a pest that came from Asia. It came from Southeast Asia. Uh, and then it moved to this area, but, you know, Minot had that soybean infestation in 2010-ish, but mm -hmm. it, it kind of disappeared after that. We went almost in our soybean aphid free. Then last year, it actually not only came up in Minot, it has actually the leading area in the entire state of North Dakota for soybean aphid impact. Uh, so I know a lot of growers were questioning what chemical should I be using here? 
uh, well, it just, you try one chemical, but you just make sure you don't repeat it over and over and over. You sure. change between classes and you're going to protect that chemical and you're going to lower the chance of resistance. Yeah. Well, it's probably similar to like the antibiotic. You don't want to be on the, not that, not you ever be on, a, and on an antibiotic all the time, but you probably want to be given like somewhat different ones if you go to the doctor, you have a bacterial infection or something, so you don't build up resistance. Exactly. Perfect example. Um, so what kind of impact to yield do the aphids have on soybean? Well, soybean aphids, depending on how big, so 250 aphids per plant is economic threshold. Once you get above that and you're not controlling it, you can have anywhere from a 5 to 25% loss in yield. Five uh, percent is probably kind of manageable, especially if you know if it was going to be a really, really good year. Twenty-five percent—that's not insignificant. Yeah, that's even ten percent is not insignificant. Yeah, and, and there have been cases we have found in research where you can have higher numbers, but remember, in research, we're not necessarily putting it through the same protective protocol. So, sure. in research, we're looking at different varieties. What can happen? So, uh, we had some of them where you had up to forty percent yield loss, but we were testing different varieties and the impact genetics can have in it. So depending on your protocol, you can have a very expanded area. It's just in the regular field that most growers are doing, you're doing enough that you're going to at least hold it probably to that 25% area. Yeah. So you get a lot of calls from producers to come out and take a look at that crops and help do a little scouting. So assume that's one of your main activities. Yeah, so that happens quite regularly a lot, especially if there are things that they haven't seen in a few years, you know, or maybe at all. I think Serbian Gomidra is one that most growers probably haven't come in contact with and seen before. Uh, Serbian aphid, I think most growers, especially in Nebraska, are probably familiar enough that they may not ask for that person to come out and scout for them more, but they might call and say, can you refresh my memory? What's threshold or you know, sure. typically I spray this. Is there something I can change it up to do something different? And, you know, the same is probably true on the weed science side. You know, there's a few weeds, Palmer amaranth coming to mind that we're finding herbicide resistance. So you're seeing similar things uh, really on the plant protection side altogether, whether it's plant disease, insects, or weed science. Sure. Then, of course, you know, the weather always throws, can throw a wrench in there. Yep. So um, anything else for the good of the cause today? Uh, I guess not coming to mind. Well, thank you very much for coming on, TJ. Good My to have pleasure. you. Thanks.